This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for September 14th, 2017, the What Happened edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Here with me in Washington, D.C., John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Hello, John. Hi. And Emily Bezelbub of the New York Times Magazine is in New York. Hello, Emily Bazelon. Hello, hello. So you added punctuation to Hillary Clinton's book title, I noticed. Making it your own with that question mark. Yes, I could, I, I'm not sure how I said it. I just sort of said it loud. I'm, mostly I said it loudly. You said it as a question. Um, that's true. I guess that's right. I, it, it's, is it not a question? I don't think I noticed that. It There's is, no punctuation. You can, uh, uh, that's you right. can take it any way you want, man. That's your right. narrative is your narrative and my narrative is my narrative. Oh, man. wow. That's groovy on this groovy show. It could also explain what happened to the beginning of this show. <laughs> <laughs> on this week's Gabfest, is Donald Trump an independent president forging a new path that will destroy the two-party system? Then Hillary Clinton's election memoir arrives. Uh, does she deserve the beating she's taking for it in some quarters and, and the praise in others? More beating than praise from what I've seen. Then a new book from Frank Four warns that big tech companies are changing how culture is made, how we think, who we are. Is it all as bad as he said it is? Hashtag alarmism. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And just to remind you, we've got two live shows coming up. Each show has a fantastic guest. So we're ready to announce that our live show in Chicago on October 25th at the Reskin Theater, October 25th at the Reskin Theater, we're going to have a special guest, Kim Fox, who is the state attorney of Cook County, Emily. Tell us a little bit about Kim Fox, who's going to be awesome. Kim Fox was elected. Um, this is the role of district attorney for the city of Chicago, although David did say her title properly. She was elected in November 2016 on a reform agenda coming in in the wake of a lot of unrest in the city about the shooting of 19-year-old unarmed Laquan McDonald and the suppression of a videotape of his shooting that um, caught up her predecessor and also the mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel. So she's come in with her own platform, a lot of ideas. She's an incredibly smart thinker on criminal justice reform and super charismatic. I'm really excited. It's going to be fun. All right. So October 25th, the Reskin Theater in Chicago, still tickets. Uh, come see us and Kim Fox. 
And then uh, we're doing our conundrum show, our annual conundrum show, live in Boston on December 6th at the Wilbur Theater. And for that wonderful show, we're also going to have a special guest, which is They Might Be Giants, is going to perform with us, and they'll be the house band for the evening. So please join us on October 25th in Chicago, and then December 6th in Boston. For information and tickets, go to slate.com slash live, slate.com slash live. In the New York Times this week, Peter Baker argued that Donald Trump is the first really independent president since the Civil War. There are several exhibits to go along with this extraordinary claim. One was the recent quickie deal that Trump pulled with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer to extend the debt ceiling and uh, extend government spending as is until December. Exhibit B, which had not happened at the time of the article, but has happened now, is his flirtation with a, a DACA deal, a deal to keep dreamers, uh, these these uh, people, children brought to the U.S. Um, illegally when they were quite young, who were uh, grown up here and of Americans and all but and all but uh, papers uh, to keep them in the country. On Wednesday night, Pelosi and Schumer leaked that they had an agreement with Trump for legislation that would keep those dreamers in the country and also provide some border security funding. The third exhibit is the Trump's own viciousness towards his members of his own party, his consistent beating of the Republican leadership and other Republicans has made some people think, well, he doesn't, he's not acting like a Republican. So Emily, are you persuaded? Is he uh, Donald Trump an independent? No, I thought this thesis was completely ridiculous, to be honest, with all due respect to Peter Baker. And there were a couple of other versions of it over the weekend, too. I mean, it seems to me that so first of all, this is a very small amount of deal making and possible deal making after eight months of riding the hard right. And I think what we're really seeing is a transformation of the Republican Party. I mean, it's true that Trump is made clear he has no fondness for Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan and a few senators like Jeff Flake in Arizona. But the base is with him and he is with the base. I mean, one of the things I read this week that astounded me is that of Republicans who say they voted for Trump in the primary, 98 percent approve of his performance in office. Now, that's not all the Republicans, because the people who say they didn't vote for him in the primary. And by the way, that number of self-reporting has declined. So there are more people backing away from their professed support of him. But And among those people, I think we're at around like two thirds or 68 percent, something like that approval. But still, Trump has a significant number of people in the base with him and they are sticking to him like glue. And so the notion that he is the engine of a third party as opposed to a takeover, perhaps hostile in some ways, of the Republican Party just uh, seems to me nuts, not to mention all the traditional arguments for why the two-party duopoly in the United States is is really hard to crack. And then the last thing is just the idea of Trump starting a new party as opposed to just being all in it for himself. I just think that is silly, to be honest. John? Well, I think like all debates, we have to define our terms. And I think this uh, this piece in particular got uh, the, the problem was that it um, it was kind of sent around particularly on Twitter, just by the headline. So some people thought independent meant moderate. And that's obviously not true. You could be an independent and be further to the right than the Republican Party. So I think what Peter was was trying to argue is that he has no 
particular allegiance to the party. And that's true in some ways. And we've we've outlined those ways. Um, the other obviously being that he was not a Republican for very long before he decided to run. The reason that he's not an independent is not necessarily anything that Donald Trump has to do. It's the what the Republican leaders are doing, which is clinging to him pretty strongly still because they see him as the vehicle for their policies. Despite the criticisms, despite the mishandling of Charlottesville and what that pointed to, which was a lot of underlying fears they had during the campaign, you still have the leaders of the Republicans in the, in the House and the Senate four square behind him. You have most of the Republicans in Congress, though they grumble behind the scenes, totally in lockstep with him because they worry about that that base that you were talking about, Emily. So from that in that sense, if your argument well, if the argument of the piece was just he's not aligned to a party and he wasn't really trying to make a claim about uh, about actually starting a third party or make a claim about about his moderation, the party structure is still totally wrapped around him because he's the guy who can raise the money in the party and because he's got that base of voters who are likely to be the ones that turn out in 2018 and because uh, a lot of those Republicans don't want to see primary challenges from that base that he has, which can maybe not defeat them, but can cause them to spend a great deal of money and make every day a painful one. And I mean, I would I mean, neither of you guys has really touched on what to me is the most obvious point, which is that on the overwhelming majority of policy matters, he has pursued extremely conservative policy goals. So if you look at the EPA that Scott Pruitt is leading, if you look at the uh, Department of Education that Betsy DeVos is leading, if you look at what uh, he's doing, the Clean Power Plan, the transgender service members, the refugee ban, Gorsuch, these are pretty typical conservative policy measures. But wasn't that my first point, that he's not a moderate? And mine. Mm, I, yeah, both it, well, not, I guess... <laughs> We didn't enumerate. All right, so you didn't enumerate. I guess really. Well, <laughs> can I just say this though? The the starting the comment with the most obvious thing, which neither of you mentioned, is that like really necessary? But uh, well, that's why she's such a friends. I didn't. But I and honestly, when I as I listened to you guys frame it, I didn't. I th- I think the specificity is what is what is the is the key. I mean, so uh, forgive okay. me. So you're forgive in a me. Friendly way, get Forg- adding good specifics to our uh, right, right. Our general, our sweeping and undetailed generalizations. John on on uh, DACA on this deal that that Pelosi and Schumer say mm-hmm. they've reached. I mean, is that is it possible? There's really a deal which will well, have, here's have no one, wall funding, and which where he screw over Jeff Sessions, his attorney general. Here to me is actually what was the the greater freak out in the in the political coverage of the president over the last week. I think this th- look the notion that the president is independent from his party and does what he wants when he wants is, um, in some sense axiomatic. It's what he does all the time. It's what he did um, in the campaign in w- where he broke from Republican orthodoxy on tax cuts, on on entitlements. Um, when he says when he flirts with uh, taxing the rich, that's breaking with Republican orthodoxy. Like He just does what he wants. He doesn't have a fixed ideology and he sloshes around all over the place. So in that sense, he is independent if you want to define your terms that way. But, but I thought the thing that was nuttier was when the president makes a three-month emergency deal with the Democrats, uh, suddenly people were saying, ah, this is it. He's going to go his like new way. It's a pivot. And well, he's either pivoting, but the, but people have claimed he's going to pivot like 98 
previous times, if not 198. It's more likely that he pivots and pivots and pivots and pivots and pivots here and pivots there, and it's unpredictable. But what would... Otherwise known as like whirling around uh, like a top. But to David's point or the question about DACA, did he make a deal? Two things are notable to me that um, he probably could have... He probably did make a deal. Like he, you know, there is some evidence uh, in both what he said and in the way he... And he said it over a pretty long period of time that he doesn't want to actually, though he said during the campaign he would rescind DACA and and be harsh about it. Subsequent to that, he's been actually pretty consistent in saying these 800,000 shouldn't be uh, just kicked out of the country. So he's trying to use it, as I think we mentioned last week, as a bargaining chip for the wall. So yes, that's what he's into doing. Now, what, what do Pelosi and Schumer try and box him in after, after a conversation? Probably. What's notable to me is the absolute roaring furnace of response from the Make America Great crowd, from Breitbart, Steve King, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram. Ann Coulter. Freaked out. And Ann Coulter said this morning in response to a tweet by the president, who doesn't want Donald Trump impeached now? And essentially what he's done by their lights is go back on a promise. Well, he's done that like on a thousand different things. It's just that this is this is obviously in the issue issue set that was central to his rise and so important to his supporters. Now, the question is, how does he respond to that? And and this will give us some sense of whether there's any possibility for a deal because, A, you know, he doesn't want to lose his supporters. But, B, any deal on a long-term deal about immigration or infrastructure or anything requires more than just being able to see how you might be able to put a deal together. It requires a long and sustained period where the people you're making the deal with can trust you. And so Democrats have to trust the president that he's not going to uh, undermine them if they make a deal with him. And Republicans have to trust him that he's not going to sell out more than mm. the little bit that he needs to to get the Democratic support. That long sustained act of trust and consistency, which is usually the bedrock of any of these complicated bipartisan deals, is is not something that he's shown in anything he's done uh, as a politician. One piece of this, um, the larger discussion about is he does he represent an independent political force? Uh, that does ring true to me is is as Jonathan Rausch, my um, spirit, animal. my spirit animal, uh, has written over the past <laughs> couple of years. The, it is quite true. There's an increasingly large number of Americans uh, who don't really believe in politics, who don't like politics, who don't trust politics, who have no faith in the give and take of it, and who are looking for almost extra political solutions from their politicians. They just want someone to come in and just, I'm going to do, do, just do it. I'm just going to do it. And Trump, Trump's simplicity and roughness um, was very appealing to them. And it is true that he has given voice to that group and he's given a center of gravity for that group to, to coalesce around. It's not centrism and it's not independence. It's not a, even a poly, party structure, but it is Something And it, what it does make you realize that if it, there was someone who was less lazy than Trump, someone who did have ideological beliefs or an actual kind of agenda who could harness that force, it would be incredibly dangerous. It's the Trump's own kind of incompetence and chaos uh, has not made it that has not made it that dangerous. I mean, it's made it unsettling, but so far is not dangerous. Um, but do but I do know? think that that is that it does represent something new. And it's very unclear to me. Uh, what happened when Trump vanishes, does that group remain as a kind of an arm of the Republican Party, a, a, a kind of vicious uh, sheathed arm of the Republican Party? Or is it does it go elsewhere? Does it melt away? I just don't know. But it's it is it has a kind of form that it didn't have two years ago. I mean, the fact that it's Trump who has embodied that 
utterly vague do it message, it, uh, you know, that explains why you would see it as dangerous. But I also think we don't exactly know that it's dangerous because some of those people were drawn to Bernie Sanders. So if you're defining dangerous as right wing, there's also a kind of inchoate populist. Um, no, I don't know. Sorry. I mean, finish the thought. I mean, I'll, I'll, no, just that there the frustration with government can come on both the left and the right. And maybe you think it's equally dangerous in either direction because it's sort of this bubbling up populism that doesn't necessarily attach itself to a set of policies. It's like kind of just anger. And in that sense, then maybe it's dangerous on either level. I guess I just am not sure. It seems to me like it's kind of roving. It could attach itself to a different kind of ideology than the nativism we see now. Well, that is a sense in which it's independent from the two parties. If you have 12% of the Sanders voters voting for Trump, Um, then then it does operate outside the parties. The problem is that even Donald Trump, with all of his talent for grabbing that, um, for making those iron filings align, um, the problem. Thank you. The problem is that um, uh, is that once you govern, you have to compromise or to get anything done. I mean, he tried it the first route with healthcare, didn't work. You know, he's trying something and flirting, doing something interesting. In fact, fully in the promise, much more of the promise of the Trump campaign than the way he's actually governed so far is much more to me was, would have been much more expected that he would have come in and said, I was a crazy disruptive candidate. Now watch this. And then tried to do an infrastructure deal with Democrats or just scramble Washington in a way that was different than the way he did, uh, which was just to be even more partisan than an existing partisan structure. So this new thing that he's flirting with is interesting. We'll see if it goes anywhere, see if it's more than just a couple of meetings and one three-month deal. But even the hint of it is causing this absolute backlash from his base and that's a constraint on the other side so you have the constraint that didn't work in healthcare and now you have the constraint that's box that's hurting him here and that's the those are the compromises and constraints that are the difference between campaigning and governing so that you make the alignment to govern i mean sorry you make the alignment alignment to get elected but then those filings go back to their scattered position because the things you do to govern uh you lose control you lose they lose their alignment The other thing about DACA, unlike that three-month deal, which just seemed to me like, you know, who was really in Trump world going to, like, throw in the towel over it? I mean, DACA, you can see why Trump is drawn to it. It's broadly popular. If he makes this deal, he will get great headlines all over the place. But it is the hill that his base is willing to die on. I mean, this really matters to them. This was it. And I don't think a lot of those folks are going to easily forgive him for this kind of compromise. I mean, it would be, I think, the most progressive, uh, if you pass the DREAM Act, that would be the most progressive federal move on immigration. Like, I can't remember. I'm not even sure what to compare it to, really. Something in the 60s, maybe. I mean, I guess amnesty, maybe, sort of, under Reagan. Anyway, it would be a big deal. And uh, and I, it's fascinating to me that he has picked this issue. And I don't imagine that it was like super strategic. I mean, he fell on his lap. He had this lawsuit. He had Jeff Sessions breathing down his neck to do something. But now he's chosen, he's sort of 
launched himself into like one of the most divisive battles possible. And also this could be Schumer and and Pelosi messing with him. I mean, you know, so FDR, they used to say that one person would walk in and he would say, yes, yes, fine, fine. And then the person with the totally opposite viewpoint would walk into his office and he'd say, yes, yes, fine, fine. And everybody would think he agreed with him. And then at the end, he'd kind of like run to the open room and make the deal and it would be done. What he didn't have at the time is the person who went in with and met with him didn't go out and issue a press release, which is what Pelosi and Schumer have done. Trump could very well have said, well, yes, we'll do this. And it could have been in that kind of nebulous part of the uh, negotiation. And and basically, Pelosi and, and Schumer have tried to lock in the gains of whatever they got last night. And they basically put him in a in a spot. So he may not have agreed to everything they said he's agreed to. I know. But he's I, also tweeting he Thursday tweet- morning, like, True. right? He's Quite right. like, Quite right. who Quite would right. ever want the dreamers to leave? And I haven't made a deal yet, but Quite right. don't worry. It will include, and oh, by the way, we're going to repaint the wall and that's going to be building it. I mean, that's so, basically what he said. That's super. We're going to repaint the wall. <laughs> he said renovate yeah. existing parts of yeah. the wall. Like, that's really quite a chant. You know, that'll really get the base uh, okay, fulfilled. <laughs> so that point is a really good one because Ann Coulter wasn't responding to what uh, Pelosi and Schumer said. She was responding to an actual tweet by the president when, in which he said, the president said they had been in our country for many years through no fault of their own, brought in by parents at a young age. And that's the thing that Coulter was re- responding to. So you're right. that That's important. Just one final point on this. Do you, either of you think there is desire in the country for a third party? I think we all agree that Trump is an unlikely uh, champion or creator or or um, Edison of that party because he lacks the discipline and doesn't seem to care enough or have principles. But do you think that these the the force that he's animated or some other force actually represents a potential third party or is that all dream, dream, dream because it's unsustainable in our system? I think there is a hunger for it. And I still think it's unsustainable in our system. Like the system's just not built for it. But I do think that among exactly the people you were talking about, people who just think politics is busted and they're tired of thinking that no matter who's in government, it's not really working for them. Yeah. I mean, these are these are old and kind of tarnished brands, Republicans and Democrats, right? Like if you could have a brand new brand that seemed to actually deliver and I just to me, it just seems like pie in the sky, both structurally and then in terms of what they would actually do. John, I agree. The appetite is there and will be there more. The more people are disappointed, the more they have an appetite for something else. And the Trump phenomenon still exists, whether the president delivers for them or not. All right. This episode of The GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift 
by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We are thrilled uh, to have with us Frank Four, longtime friend of GABFEST, friend of ours, uh, former Slate colleague for me once back in the day, who's the author of a new manifesto, World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. Uh, I've worn my Facebook shirt frank to goad you uh, i'm so ignoring it uh you can't ignore Why do you it you have a facebook shirt that's just ridiculous because back in the day when i when i was editing slate don graham took all the top sort of washington post company brass out to silicon valley for uh, several days of meetings with people and we went to facebook and met with zuckerberg and Sheryl sandberg and they gave us free t-shirts and i have it and it's I, i'm going to the gym later and it's, it just is like a good gym t-shirt what you can't see i hate plot, facebook though what you can't see this plots is google underwear <laughs> <laughs> but google can see it we'll have a showing of which that i bought later. on amazon <laughs> so uh, also frank you're talking to me this morning and my wife is interviewing you this evening. So a day a- bookended by Rosenplatz's. Wow. What a good day. Will you yeah. survive? <laughs> <laughs> so what is the fundamental argument of World Without Mind? So the argument is, ever since we've been human beings, we've had tools, and these tools have been extensions of us, and they've been really great. They've allowed us to do all sorts of wonderful things, and you could even argue that technology is one of the things that defines us as human beings. But over the course of the last... 10 years or so, we've had the emergence of all these incredible new technologies. And these companies that produce these technologies have a very strong view of human nature and how humans should interact with these technologies. And so my my argument is that these companies have not just a view, but they're able to impose their view because of their economic power. And my concern is that that power gives them enormous control over markets, over information, culture, and ultimately over democracy. And so rather than just sitting back and marveling at these things and enjoying their fruits, we should also be considering with, with a very skeptical eye the implications of them. Because look, so we've always, we've always had tools, we've been merging with our machines, but we're much, much more integrated with these machines than anything else. And so the companies that run them deserve to have pressure put on them. Yeah. So I was... <laughs> Word. I, I buy it. I was thinking about antitrust law as I was reading and thinking about your book and whether it is equal to this task. I read an interview with you where you were talking about how one of the sparks for you for writing, I think, was when Amazon started to try to bully the Hachette Publishing Group right. into selling its e-rights for a very cheap. And of course, the irony of that moment was that the Justice Department came cracked down on the book publishers instead of on Amazon. And that just seems indicative to me. I haven't done enough thinking about how our antitrust principles line up with this moment, but I'm skeptical, especially as I watch the Europeans seem to do a better job of regulating. I'm skeptical that American law as currently conformed is up to the task. Yeah, it's super interesting. If you look at the way that the Europeans are approaching the problem, you could argue that they're doing a more American job of approaching it than the Americans, that if you look back in the history of our communication technologies, you you can see that ever since the founders, we've been very, very skeptical 
of communication monopolies, and we've tried to constrain them and prevent them from extending into the next thing. So the Postal Service was a monopoly, the first monopoly in, in this realm, and we prevented them from getting into the telegraph business. And then when Western Union achieved a monopoly in, in telegraphy, we, we constrained them from getting into uh, the telephone business and so on and so forth, all the way through the, the Microsoft case in the Clinton administration Back when Plotz and I are slate oldsters and we were here when Microsoft was getting sued by the government. In retrospect, that was actually an important case. The case was settled in the early days of the Bush administration. But I don't think Google would have been possible were it not for that go the government's uh, prosecution of Microsoft because Microsoft was super scared about getting broken up. And it really reined itself in when it came to operating the browser and I've talked to a lot of people at Google and they say, yeah, we would have we would have we would have gotten creamed by Microsoft were it not for that case. And so I think what the Europeans are doing is really important. And, and, and our anti you know, one of the facts is that these monopolies were kind of born at a moment when our regulatory system was super lax and when Chicago style economics had kind of really taken over the regulatory state. And yet don't some people look at that Microsoft case and say that the argument Microsoft is making was borne out, which is when they were fighting against the Justice Department, they said, look, we can have our lunch stolen at any moment. All of this innovation doesn't create the network effects and doesn't allow us to believe the way you claim because at any moment somebody can come up with a better idea and and because all, all somebody has to do is switch their operating system or switch their browser there's much faster movement into the market and that that's what they would say Google did, which proved their argument. Right. So that's a counterfactual history that we could we could argue both ways. And I know that there are people within the kind of historians of technology who argue it either way. And it kind of depends on your ideological predilection. I support antitrust. So I say, you know, Google was only born thanks to antitrust laws. Uh, I mean, Eric Schmidt's motto is competition is always a click away. Mm -hmm. Uh and yet there is this lock-in that happens with networks. And so when you join up with a network, you tend to just stick with it because it becomes a pain in the ass to schlep to another network. And so I could use DuckDuckGo or uh, some other or Bing. When was the last time you used Bing, John Dickerson? Um, I was a, I was a righteous user right. of Bing when they advertised. <laughs> on the I think it came up accidentally on my phone the other day, and I was so confused. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> Bing is around. Right. Exactly. Right. Is it true the story about Zappos and Amazon, which is that? What you're describing is people get used to doing something that creates network effects that then create that then allow those big companies to just keep it being from being a click away. In theory, um, so basically, when Amazon said we want to buy Zappos, yes. Zappos said no, and then Amazon basically buried Zappos in the search results. <laughs> Wasn't right. that diapers? So they did I thought that was diapers. It's, it's, it's diapers. Oh, diapers. I thought it was Zappos too, though. And there's a Zappos story I remember somewhere, too. But anyway, they ended up buying Zappos. But there's a after. Yelp story like that, too, yeah. about restaurant reviews, right? There but is. It, so, so, Frank, one of the arguments that implicitly and explicitly you make, and, I, and I'll quote you from an interview, I worry that we're always being watched, when, that when we're always being watched, we cease to feel comfortable thinking subversive original thoughts. There's an ecosystem of journalists and book publishers who are getting crushed in this new economy. It's their words that are necessary to be contemplative human beings. I, I'm not sure. I, I definitely don't share this 
this gloom. I mean, you're speaking tonight at Sixth and I, an institution that didn't exist 20 years ago, a cultural institution, which now brings intelligent discourse to Washington, D.C. in a way that wasn't there 20 years ago. It's not technology, but it's it's the fact that it can reach people technologically mm-hmm. allows it to thrive. The realm of podcasts, the universe of discussion and kind of journalism that never existed is thriving. Books are still being sold and created in enormous numbers. And I, I mean, I don't have the numbers, but I bet we're at a peak book sales for this country. And and certainly there are c- kinds of journalism that have suffered, but uh, there are new models that have arisen. And you have the New Yorker, I, again, would hazard, has the highest subscription numbers. The New York Times certainly has the highest subscription numbers that they've ever had. So how do you square that diversity of ideas and of new formats with your sense that 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 uh, the world of contemplation and of idea generation and sharing is being da- damaged. Well, a lot of those businesses are incredibly tenuous. I mean, we could you could say that the New Yorker has higher numbers than it ever has, or that the New York Times has higher numbers than it ever has, but they're relative, I think, to their history. They're just kind of eking by, and I, you know, and I think the problem. If, I don't think that's true. I mean, I think you can say you that. Mean, if, you're talking about money, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think that's true. I certainly don't think that's true of the New Yorker relative to where it was 20 years ago. Okay, so it had a bad it had a bad spell when it was overspending, and then Remnick's done a good job of. But I think if you were to talk to the business people at the New York uh, the New Yorker, they'd say it's it's in a way in a way the problems were so fixable 20 years ago because it just meant reigning in spending and you there was a there was kind of a logic to circulation but the problem now is one of it's one of dependence and we know this in journalism really clearly which is that in order to grow traffic uh, in order to grow revenue you have to you have to achieve volumes of traffic that you we, that are kind of unprecedented in terms of the scale of audience but it's also the dependence that we have as an industry on Facebook. And the same thing is true for books, that books have never been as dependent on Amazon. And so let's just unpack the Facebook example because I think that it allows us to get at some of the the costs of this dependence, unless you want to, you know, you're, the, you're wearing the jersey, so um, you, you feel free to pipe in in their defense. <laughs> that This is what I experienced, and I think that this is what a lot of people have experienced with Facebook, which is that in order to succeed on Facebook, you have to play by Facebook's rules. Right now, we see this with video, that Facebook has decided that video is the thing. And so that means that all the journalistic institutions that are dependent on Facebook have to make a tr- have to transfer resources into investing in video. And, and that comes at a cost, right? I mean, it, no, nobody has infinite amount of resources where you can just kind of expand what you're doing into a new thing. You have to make choices. And so the choice that the entire industry is making, driven by Facebook, is to shift from Word to, to video images. And maybe video is great a lot of the time, but I think in aggregate, it's probably not a healthy sort of shift. Or let's look at politics where... I mean, this is this is really, I think, at the core of a lot of my my beef, and it was something that I didn't really even fully appreciate until this last election unfolded. Which is that Facebook cre- has this illusion of personal choice, but of course, we know that there isn't choice there because everything is guided, everything is sorted by an algorithm, and it's a feedback loop, and it gives you, it's trying to give you what you want in order to keep you clicking, and in politics, that's super dangerous because. 
you know, on the one hand, we can say, all right, our system has never been so polarized. But really, that polarization has created two hive minds that Facebook has nurtured. And within those hive minds, you have people who are highly susceptible to, to they're getting what they want to hear, which makes them, I think, worse citizens. But it also makes them highly susceptible to fake news and propaganda because fake news and propaganda confirms conform. And it's also diminished the authority. Facebook has also diminished the authority of of media. So Facebook is this just just giant stew of stuff that's thrown at you. And the most important thing is the headline, not where it comes from. And so it's had the effect of diminishing the authority of media. Elite media. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about the trade-offs, I thought one of the things you did a really good job of writing about is the the sheep herding toward clickbait stories. We're like, yeah, fine, let's read about Cecil the Lion. But ev- but all of the huge fire hose of resources directed towards Cecil the Lion instead of one obvious thing is just local news coverage. From my, my own book reporting, I've been trying to rely on local news coverage in the way that you have to do if you're trying to write about something happening in a city that you don't live in. And it is amazing how thin it is right now. It's really been a lesson for me in understanding what that looks like when local news coverage kind of dries up and withers. Yeah, that's that's a pretty great example. Also, it makes it Cecil the Lion makes uh, local news coverage a lot cheaper, too, because you just re- replay the footage of Cecil the Lion reporting on something that takes a lot of time and effort. And you have to have a beat reporter and you have to, you know, maybe there aren't pictures. So you have to spend a couple of days more trying to find a way to tell a story that doesn't have pictures in a dynamic way that people will watch. It's easier to do the Cecil the Lion. And some of it is spinach. I mean, it used to be before we had Chartbeat and all of our traffic metrics that you could fool yourself into thinking that the investigative dive into corruption in the district attorney's office was getting a ton of eyeballs. Like nobody had to really think when it was a piece of paper that we were reading who was reading what. And that was an illusion that newspapers were able to perpetuate that was very useful for driving local news coverage. And and now we've it's sort of like now we know and it's not pretty what we've learned. You know, I guess I think there are two different things here. There's the there's the uh, is there great work and useful work and work that serves the public citizens being created and created in new ways and new forms? It is. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think I I agree with that. you know, I think the problem, which which I think you're you're absolutely right about, is that the way that it, the way that we are it, we are filtered. I mean, it's the filter, the way we're seeing it, the way Facebook guides how we see it, the way it reinforces our biases. That to me is is the problem. But I don't think there is an absence of the actual culture. Well, no, I don't. Content. I don't. I don't yeah. either. I don't either. I mean, look at if if you look at something like BuzzFeed. You know, BuzzFeed is many, many things. It, it's produced some of the greatest investigative reporting of the of the last generation. It's nurtured some incredibly impressive journalists, and you know, kudos to them for that. And 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 they've done it in in creative sort of ways. But at the same time that they've done that, they've also helped kind of usher in this culture of clickbait journalism. I wouldn't say we're at a crisis where all this good stuff doesn't has, has ceased to exist. It's still being produced. In droves, but its its authority has diminished because there's we live in a world of trade offs. 
There's also such a star system with like the things that really do pop and hit and go viral and then all the things that don't. It just feels like some things become huge because of Facebook or Twitter or, or whatever. And maybe that's deserved. Maybe it's fine. But in the end, it, it has that feeling of like fast food or a big chain restaurant or like movie stars who get paid a ton of money and then everyone else gets a smaller amount relative to that. Is there any way in which you can argue that um, Jeff Bezos um, and his success at Amazon, which has then allowed him to do what he's doing with The Washington Post, is a model for re-fertilizing the old? So if you argue The Washington Post has gotten better and is more powerful than it used to be, and that's in part because of him, and he is able to do that because of his success in this and, other area. And I'll cite a second example, which is the magazine that you work for. The Atlantic has just been bought by yeah. Laureen. Yeah. Powell jobs. So you're saying essentially it's okay to accept rent seeking monopolists because they will beneficently fund news organizations. Right. And and so just like they did in the you know, newspapers of the last century. But that, or that they was, used to yeah. build museums and concert halls, right? Like right. Carnegie mailed all his money and then he gave back. The problem is it's up to their whim, right? Like yeah. they don't well, Jeff Bezos doesn't wants to sell them Washington Post. Well, I guess also if you're just trying done. to figure out the 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 aggregate um you know, good and bad. Like is so, this so the, the, the the two problems. One is that journalism's uh, journalists tend to be incredibly narcissistic, right? So we, it, it's, uh, you know, every, every conversation we have with the taxi driver becomes a column, right? But uh, so I think that we, we can't just judge these people, uh, by their beneficence, right? We, we, we did not judge Andrew Carnegie in his day or we didn't immunize him against government regulation because, because he built libraries and we shouldn't do that with these people. And secondly, I think we're, we still don't really know the answer to those the, the question of whether these people are good for journalism. With Marty Baron as the editor of the Washington Post and a strong editor, any owner is going to look good if you give if you give that guy the space to do his job. I'm optimistic about uh, the new owner of the Atlantic, but um, if, if if you read the things that Jeff Bezos has said over time about his responsibility as an elite. I think it would cause you to, to at least leave it as an open question whether he's going to be good as an owner. And so it's worth just, I'll just, just spend 30 seconds. If you looked at the past generation of newspaper owners who were, who were also uh, monopolistic rent seekers, who were also were very powerful and cozied up to power and were highly imperfect. They also had a sense of their power and they created checks on it. And so the idea of objectivity was a check that was created on the power of newspaper owners and a separation between the business side of newspapers and the editorial side. They had letters to the editor, they published corrections. There was a real sense of, of balance that was built into that system because there was a sense of noblesse oblige for better or for worse that they had. If you listen to Bezos, he talks about responding to the market, and that's that's his view of the world, is that his job isn't to lead people to the good. His job is to give people what they want. One thing I would advise for your for the um, uh, world without mind to the return. The um, afterward. Is uh, <laughs> your, your three main subjects are Facebook, Google, and Amazon as companies, and about the sort of uh, – the market effects and the software effects. I actually think that that uh, Apple deserves bigger 
piece of this because the the biggest change that I see in the world is not necessarily in software but in hardware and the fact that we all of us have this device in our hands and it's nibbling our attention in this way every second and that like when I think about what worries me about the technological future it's it's actually less some of the things you talk about and it's more that how uh, our ability to concentrate uh, is being grabbed and destroyed by these attention hoarding devices. That That is fair. I mean, I think that Apple is really a platform above all for these other guys and, and the way that they, they try to engineer things to addict us. But clearly Apple's phones are engineered to addict us as well um, and, and addict us in a totally different sort of way where we, we keep wanting the next thing and the next upgrade, and they've done the most effective job of creating the sense of magic around their product. Uh, so, Frank, your book is just out. People will find it by searching for it on Google. They will buy it on Amazon. Uh, they will see their friends referring to it on Facebook. Have, you, have these platforms dinged you at all? So far as I know, no. <laughs> it would be the awesome. secret plan. Is I, I, I would be, I would be so... I'd be so happy if they dinged me. I mean, right, no, that's true. Yeah. Although yes, not if you were con- like wiped from the web, that wouldn't be so great. Yeah, <laughs> proof of concept. Yeah, I, I feel I feel a measure of um, conflict about the extent to which I both check my Amazon number relentlessly, that I self promote myself through the platforms, and and I can see just like the rank hypocrisy of my argument when I'm when I'm doing these things. Uh-huh. Fortunately, I didn't call for everybody to uh, unilaterally disarm in this world, so maybe that exempts me. Maybe you're burning down the master's house with the master's tools. There's like some, it's all, you have a That's secret plan happening. of your own. That's what's happening. Thank you. <laughs> we just stick with you. All right. Uh, world Without Mind by Franklin Four is the book that people are going to be talking about this fall. It is a great argument starter. It's a great subject of discussion. You should go get it so you can be a participant, so you can be culturally fluent. Frank, thanks for coming by. Thank you so much. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. What happened? Hillary Clinton's new book arrives in stores. Maybe it has arrived in stores. She, it is very hard to perform an autopsy on your own corpse, but she, she manages to do that. I would call this book, uh, which incidentally I haven't read. I've read bits from it and I've read about it, but I don't have a copy of it. So, but from what I've Me read. Me neither. I'm equally fessing okay. up about that. Yeah, okay. well, I might as well do the same. All right. Okay. Uh, all right, here we the go. The book we have and not the, read. The book we have not yeah. read. Yeah. Here but, we go. But the book we have not read, I'm going to call Murderer on the Orient Express. According to her telling, she was killed by James Comey, by Vladimir Putin, by her own emails, by her comments about the basket of deplorables, by her 
dutifulness, by sexism, by white racism, by the lack of enthusiasm of African-American voters, by a media double standard, by the stupid electoral college. It's all true, isn't it, Emily? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the question about this book is, does she blame herself enough or is she still kind of dodgy about that? And then is should it exist at all, which I think is ridiculous. Of course, she can write a book if she wants to. Um, and then is the timing for it helpful to her progressive cause? Here's the question about blaming herself. Um, so the question is, A, could she ever blame herself enough to pay the price some people would require her to pay to then listen to her other arguments. Yes, that is a really so, good way so to that's, put it. I'm, I'm, I think there are th- that it's not as um, uh, perfectly obvious that she needs to go on for you know several chapters about how awful she is. Um, In order to earn the right to yeah. criticize or to name the other factors. Right. Emily, one of the things that she apparently talks about regretting is that she didn't bring bigger or bolder policy proposals to the table. I, that's that seems ludicrous to me. I don't think anyone In what would have sense? taken like. I mean, that wasn't her style. It's and just not her. Believed her anyway. Yeah, people wouldn't have believed her. I don't think it's reasonable for people to to you know, her brand was stability. Like like that was the play. It's like I'm I'm the adult. I mean, retrospectively, you can say, oh, if she'd only harnessed some of that populist anger. Uh, herself and and you know gone further in her campaigns maybe she would have done better but that was I just I, that feels so Monday morning quarterbacking of somebody whose entire raison d'etre was that stability calm reason yeah I agree I mean I think from what I've read about the book and the excerpts I've read there's a frustration with Bernie Sanders this way in which he was promising purple ponies that were going to prance around the Christmas tree and and so was Donald Trump and she couldn't do that and I can completely imagine why that would be intensely enraging for her but I also think you're right and that to the degree that this was what sunk her it had to do with being the establishment candidate at a moment when that was just not what the country wanted no one should also add she did win the popular vote so to say it wasn't what the country wanted is a little crazy well yeah no that's right and that's when we evaluate 2016 for to understand where the country is there is a tendency to say well the country ratified this but i think in david's long list of things that were contributory although i think in all the things that contributed i think nate silver has made a pretty good case for the comey announcement um, at the end, towards the end of the campaign in October, in October, playing of all those things, playing a weighted role so that all of those may have been contributors and we can't necessarily put our finger on one. But if you had to put your finger on one or lose your house, I think the arguments for the Comey uh, late breaking news are pretty well supported. Um, but the but the going back to what we were talking about earlier, like how much of a mea culpa does she need to do? There is a there is a way in which as she tries to see what she did wrong, it does help us then illuminate the way we think about campaigns. And just like her criticism of the media, which I think is well founded. Yes. This point that David makes illuminate something about the nature of our campaigns. Is it was this a campaign in which people wanted more policy papers? Have there ever been campaigns in which people wanted more policy papers? I mean, Barack Obama did not win because he had 17 papers on income inequality. He had a hope and change message and he had the the girding underneath to support it. But uh, and that was important, but it wasn't the necessary, you know, it wasn't the necessarily the winning thing. And that would go back even to her husband, who had plenty of policy chops, 
but the sense of empathy and the sense of fighting for people, the ability to make the kind of emotional appeal that President Trump was able to do and that Hillary Clinton had difficulty with operates completely outside of the uh, arena of policy changes. You know what that also makes me think about is the way in which she was burdened by the expectation that everyone assumed she was going to win, right? I mean, that's another example for why she didn't promise Purple Pony. She thought she would be held to that promise. Trump and Sanders didn't necessarily think that. And then Comey's intervention, the fact that Obama didn't freak out more about what he knew about Russian hacking. These are all premised on her certain victory. I wonder if the single biggest gift this botched 2016 campaign could give us would be to just wipe away that assumption the next time that people will not prejudge and that we won't believe, you know, that 84 percent she's going to win number from the upshot or from 538. Um, I think there was was a little lower by Election Day. You know what I'm talking about? Like that we'll just take it as a real race, like no matter what. And that that that's actually intensely important for how the campaign is covered and for the set of decisions people make who are in a position to to really influence its outcome. Although I would take you back to the time during the campaign where there were a host of people who said, you know, to even pretend that this is a real race is a total media creation. They're only doing it to get people doing it to get people to watch. And Hillary Clinton has won, and it's totally, uh, you know, the, among the worst things the media does uh, is to pretend that there's a real race when, in fact, the race is over, and all of our data tells yeah. us that it's over. Oh, there was a whole yeah. Yeah, lot of right. that. Yeah, you're there right. was you're a right. host of that. Yeah. Right? No, I agree, but I just feel yeah. like we got to blow that out of the water. Like those. That's not. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Do you guys think she had that this book is her last act as a real big public figure? I just don't know what else she has in her. I don't know. I mean, she's an incredibly energetic and determined person. I think it's amazing that this book is coming out now, that she is getting up and talking publicly. I mean, this is a person who like spent, as far as I can tell, about three minutes on the fainting couch before she just got back up again. And I hope that... We do find uh, that she finds and that the country finds a really strong public role for her. I mean, I'm just always going to feel like we all owe her and that women in particular owe her. There was something faded and doomed about the fact that the first female nominee of a major party for president was someone who came in who came into public life as a wife who was laden with her husband's baggage and with all the um, freight of the 1990s Clinton administration. That was part of her problem. It's also part of why she was paranoid about news coverage and privacy, email server related. And I just like I want her to have a next act and to be like honored for the things that she has done because she gets hated in such an over the top way. Like it's people's anger toward her just seems to me like way out of proportion when you think about the things she's done. And I don't I see that she's flawed. I deeply see that she's flawed. But I just hear people talk about her in this way that just feels to me like it's just not fair. And to the extent that she's unburdened by the um, self-imposed restraint that a campaign and the future in politics put on her, perhaps she can be, you know, she can deliver more to the conversation now than she could previously where she had to be so restrained. One of the thing I would just add quickly is that Thomas Frank, I thought, wrote a good piece in The Guardian in, in the sense that it represented a core complaint about her and that it continues to be a debate. And another reason this is important for her to write this book is that it, 
it continues conversations in a new way about the future of politics and the future of the Democratic Party for those who are interested in that. And the argument essentially was that she, even in her book, doesn't recognize her or doesn't wrestle with enough and engage enough for the purposes of illumination, the fact that she didn't talk about trade, outsourcing, immigration, opiates, deindustrialization, and all those other things, and Wall Street, enough to meet the needs of an electorate out there who are riled up about those things. And the reason that matters with respect to the book critique is that that's still a conversation going on in democratic politics right now about whether anybody can speak to that group of people and how they would do it and who they would be. And do you do it through issue paper, policy papers, or do you do it through a pie in the sky proposals, which tend to be, you know, voters almost discount the pie in the sky. They just like, uh, it's like they say about holiday photographs. It's not that you ever capture the Mount Rush more in your picture, but the fact that you took 72 pictures of it conveys how how odd you were by the moment. And that's sort of the true truth of, of political proposals. Even though it may not happen in reality, boy, are you committed to it. Man, as an elitist, as a, as a proud elitist, I, I find it also disturbing. I find that Frank piece unsettling, like that it's it was so populist. It was so positive that there's a left-wing populism, which isn't dangerous, which I don't think is true. But and also, we'll he was dismissing her in just the way that was bothering me. Anyway. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When uh, John Dickerson is having his traditional five fingers of scotch, what will you be chattering about with the little Dickersons? I ran into uh, Mitch Daniels, the president of Purdue University and former governor of Indiana. And, um, and Slate Political Gabfest guest. Yeah. Well, not How did Slate... you leave out his most important credential? Well, I was winding up to that. Um, oh, uh, but you rushed in to seize the trophy. Um, I was trying to figure out what title to give him because he's been a, a guest enough and both as a president and as a governor, right? Wasn't he on when he was governor? I don't know. No. But anyway, he no, has a, just once. He has a uh, anyway, I had a conversation with him about this um, program they have at Purdue that I didn't know about before. But it's an attempt to basically change the student debt equation for their students. So just to remind that there's one point three trillion dollars in student debt out there. The average owed by a student is thirty seven thousand dollars. What they do at Purdue is they change it from a debt model to an equity model. And essentially, Purdue, you can invest in the future of Purdue students and the school itself has invested in them. And then what happens is when a student graduates, a portion of their income is then used to pay back their debts. So if they turn out to not get a job, then the hit is taken not by the student who can't pay their $37,000, but the, the hit is taken by the person who owns the share in this fund, and the fund is made up of all the students repaying. So the, you take a hit. You don't get 7%. You get 3% because some number of students. But if you're, but you invest in Purdue on the basis of the idea that, you know, it's a good school and most of the students are going to go out and get pretty decent jobs. So in other words, it just shifts the risk from the student who has this debt hanging over them to the shareholder. And the formula is adjusted so that, A, there's no interest. Okay, so that's important, which means you can take a, a job at an entry level that's going to have big upside later knowing that you're not going to be accumulating interest payments when you while you can't pay off your student debt in those early years. Um, anyway, it just seemed like a very clever plan. And there's, That's cool. I want to find out how that works, like how it works in the longer run, I mean. How it, right, exactly. And what the inevitable criticism is uh, and then how they get around it. But there's a piece that the NewsHour did um, on the 22nd of August about this that the president of Purdue, Mitch Daniels, pointed me to. So I thought that was interesting. Emily, what is your chatter? 
My chatter is about a new book called The Internationalists. It's by a couple of law professors of whom I am immensely fond, Ona Hathaway and Scott Shapiro. And it's really like an eye-opening book. I just never thought about war the way Ona and Scott write about it. Basically, their argument is that the Kellogg-Briand pack, which is this sort of usually kind of forgotten agreement from 1928, which outlawed war, really did succeed in reducing war and especially in reducing invasions. And of course, the reason that this pact has been largely set aside is that it was followed by uh, World War II and some other big invasions in the 1930s, which were kind of inconvenient. But Ona and Scott did this research over many decades, and they really are able to show um, a drop in the number of wars and invasions since then. And the other thing about this book, which is so appealing, is just it has these amazing character sketches of figures like Hugo Grotius, Grotius, who is a Dutch philosopher, I think, in the 17th century, who wrote about war and was actually arguing for um, aggression being legal and letting the winner take the spoils, which is not where we ended up, thankfully. But anyway, it's one of many just really elucidating steps along the way. So it's called The Internationalists. I think the publishing date was this week, and it's by Ona Hathaway and Scott Shapiro. Okay. My chatter is kind of a downer. It's actually very Bazelon style and subject matter. Oh, which, good. Which Are you is chattering about the Pence Kobach Voter Commission insanity? Because that was my other chatter. This no, oh my no. God. It's uh, my chatter is about a remarkable article and interactive that the Cincinnati Enquirer newspaper did called Seven Days of Heroin. That is amazing. Which is uh, attempts to, they, they sent mo- most of their staff, it seems like, out for a week in July just to watch heroin affect uh, Cincinnati and the communities around Cincinnati. So they're with cops who are dealing with people ODing. They're with courts handling cases of addicts who have shot up around their own kids. They're at narcotic support groups uh, with people trying to quit, with a family that's lost a son to an overdose, with a prostitute selling selling sex for drug money, people struggling and struggling and struggling, struggling to try to stay away from heroin and fentanyl, kids who are abandoned and neglected and abused. And then there's just sort of a climbing body count that associates it as time and the seven days goes on. It is very, very sad and very grueling and is a really remarkable picture of this terrible, um, this terrible scourge that the country is experiencing in the Cincinnati Enquirer. I want to recommend a podcast. We're doing some podcast Slate podcast recommendations in Slate podcast world. And so this week, I got a little bit of a Homer recommendation, which is the Double X Gab Fest. So this Double X Gab Fest is a podcast that is hosted by Noreen Malone and June Thomas and my own wife, Hannah Rosen. And it's about feminism, gender, sexuality, health, politics, culture, other interests, other other issues of interest to women. And it's great. I get to talk to Hannah all the time. And she's really very, very smart and very interesting and very funny and provocative. And I get that hours and hours every week. And yet still, I listen to the Double X Gab Fest because even there, I get to hear not only her uh, brilliant thoughts that she hasn't expressed at home when she's talking about dinner, and also Noreen and June are just delightful and lively and 
bright and it's always a great conversation. So it is such a fun show and so smart and incisive and really like sitting around with I mean, don't get to talk, but I don't get to talk to Hannah all the time. And I really enjoy getting to have a pretend one way conversation with her and June and Noreen. It's great. Yeah. So listen to the Double X Gab Fest, which posts Thursday morning every other week. That's our show for today. Jocelyn Frank produces the Political Gap Fest. Izzy Road is our researcher. Kevin is gone. I was just going to say Kevin's name, but he's gone. Forgotten him. Totally. No, we have not forgotten him. Oh, yeah. We still remember him. Still remember him. Uh, And you should follow us on Twitter at Slate Gap Fest, where there's all sorts of interesting things that we are posting that Izzy is passing on. So follow us on Twitter at Slate Gap Fest. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and David Plotz, thanks for listening. Please come to our live show in Chicago and our live show in Boston. You can get tickets at slate.com slash live. Talk to you next week. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.